you would join me, we'll open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning that you brought us together. Thank you for air in our lungs and beating hearts. And we pray that you'll speak your name to us, that we can know you better and know our place in this world and in life. And in the name of Christ that we pray that we'll see. Amen. <clears throat> so as I said, I'm Paul Ellis. Uh, we're continuing our discussion of early Christian art this morning. Uh, if you can leave one of those open at least for just airflow, I uh, appreciate it. If you could get the light while you're up there. Thank you. And we'll just uh, be of great imagination and imagine it's evening and cool. So uh, we're going to continue the discussion of specifically non-narrative art in early Christianity. Um, that would be depictions of more of the symbols without trying to tell the actual story of, say, you know, Daniel or Moses, things like that. Now, this is going to pick up where Brad left off last week uh, with a little bit of overlap. <laughs> Uh, we're discussing how certain symbols already present in the first three centuries and before were being picked up by the Christian community. Some points to keep in mind, um, things that Brad has covered that will uh, speak to what we're discussing today. Now remember that there were few works in the very early Christian community for a few reasons. Uh, we don't see a lot of them popping up until closer to the time of Constantine uh, after the persecutions, which is one reason for it. But one of the main ones is, uh, is that uh, they were still largely part of the Jewish community in the early Christian faith. They're attending synagogues, and one of those uh, rules that they would have is, of course, don't make any images of God. And they've been through a lot of trauma. They've been exiled. They've come back. And, and one of the reactions to that is how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? And so they take you know one rule and they make lots of rules around it as you see it with the Pharisees. Um, now after that you're going to see symbols start popping up uh, especially after the fall in AD 70 of Jerusalem because um, according to a legend a Christian was sent a vision that the Christians should flee Jerusalem um, before the the fall and of course the Romans do come in completely destroy Jerusalem and those that survive there's a rift between the, uh, the, the strictly Orthodox Jewish community and the Christian sect, so the, uh, the Christians um, who had left. Now, whether or not the vision was actually something that happened, of course you could see, like, this was ramping up. People knew there was tension between Rome and the Jewish community, and so they probably knew what was coming and left and then attributed it to a vision, or the vision could have actually happened. Uh, either way, uh, there's a rift between the two, and the Christian cult, as it was uh, known back then, finds its home in the Greek world uh, and, and the empire where Paul has already laid a lot of the groundwork in a lot of his missionary journeys. So now you see these, these two worlds overlapping in symbols and art being adopted into the expressions of, of what that community is wrestling with. Now, uh, of course, many of the symbols weren't created by the Christian community. They, uh, they already existed and they were adopted in some form. Uh, sometimes they're changing the meaning. Sometimes they're, they're uh, co-opting it, so to speak, attributing their faith to it, one faith taking over especially as the Christian faith becomes the, uh, the official faith after Constantine and during Constantine. Now, it isn't always crystal clear in a work whether it's specifically Christian or pagan because it's going to be the exact same painting, or, uh, especially in, in, uh, in the catacombs. So you really have to take context. And so let's say like in the, uh, in, in the catacomb of Priscilla that we looked at, You've got a lot of obviously Christian motifs being used, so you can look at the uh, Good Shepherd, which we'll look at later, and say, okay, yeah, that that's definitely uh, one. I, I, something just popped in my mind. Uh, do you know if there's any reference anywhere that you run into 
uh, if there were certain recognition things that they did so that they could recognize each other. And I'm thinking like the Masonic uh, people have certain things that they can do to tell others we are one. Okay, so for the recording, the question was, uh, did the early Christian community have uh, certain signs uh, that they could recognize each other, especially during persecution, I guess you're referring to. I'm not sure about that. I, I would guess they would. Um, and and uh, you'll, the, what he's talking about is, is something you can actually see in our community because we have a lot of Coptic Christian um, refugees because they're a highly persecuted group. Uh, and you'll see uh, on sort of the web section of each one of their hands, they will have a, uh, it's sort of more of a squared cross, uh, all of the points being um, equal, and, and it's got sort of a, uh, a spade on the end, but it's a, it's a uh, crucifix symbol. Uh, over uh, where they are, where they're being persecuted, their state IDs have the religion listed on it. And so to get that, uh, get that tattoo, you have to uh, show your ID. And so when you're walking into the service, you'll see on the hand that this is in fact um, someone of our faith and no one else is going to get that because they take their lives in their hands by having it it's a very brave thing if you see it in nashville it happens here i would expect it did happen and, and i could do some more research and uh, next week address that so the sign of the fish that's actually next week uh, we're going to be talking about fish and feasts so Yeah, draw the ichthus in the uh, in the dirt. Ah, I've got it. So you would do one half of it. So you know the the uh, the fish symbol that you see on a lot of cars that you're talking about. We have talked about this earlier, and we'll talk about it next week. But it was uh, it, it stood for uh, Jesus Christu uh, Theu Weusator, which is Jesus Christ, uh, God's Son, Savior. Um, and, and so ichthus meaning fish, and that had the double meaning for them. But like I said, we'll get into more of that next week. Uh, today's topics, we're going to cover more of the Good Shepherd depictions. We're also going to talk about the Orpheus and Helios imagery that is used to depict Christ. And then we're going to uh, talk about the Seated Philosopher. Now, hopefully when Brad comes back, he'll also be able to give some thoughts on these because if you've been here in weeks past or just talked to him, he's got a lot of deep knowledge in a lot of areas um, and a lot of good stuff to offer. So Good, good Shepherd depictions. The Good Shepherd is typically depicted as a young man uh, carrying a sheep or a ram over his shoulders, sometimes under the arm. Uh, the figure is often portrayed uh, carrying a set of pipes, uh, a shepherd's purse, sometimes a bucket of milk. Uh, here's a very early one. Uh, early on, the shepherd image shown here is it's carrying actually a calf over its shoulders. And uh, so this is Hermes as calf bearer. Uh, the image predates the time of Christ by many centuries, so this actual piece would not have been known to anyone during the time of Christ as it was underground and not unearthed uh, till much later. Uh, but the people who would see this image and use this image later would have it in mind just the same way that, you know, say the eagle in America has so much wrapped up in it for so many people. It's not just one thing. It can be used in a lot of things. And when you see it, uh, it it's going to mean more than just one thing. Uh, but this is a good example of an earlier depiction. Uh, um, like I said, they wouldn't have known it. It was underground. Uh, I think it was unearthed in the 1900s, actually. This, uh, this has origins with Hermes. Uh, it was also made to uh, sort of a lord of the area. Uh, it has, you see the beard on it, uh, which isn't typical later on, but is early on. Uh, but it also evokes uh, the symbol of Hermes, who is said to have averted a plague from descending on Tanagra by carrying 
a ram around the city walls. So the, the symbolism of, of carrying the ram in this case would have described salvation of the city and echo the carrying of a beast for sacrifice, which was known across a lot of cultures, of course, in, in, uh, in our tradition in the Old Testament, starting very early on. And then that is carried on into the New Testament of, of sacrifice affecting uh, life now and life later. Uh, here's the Hermes Creophorus, that just means the, the ram bearer as opposed to the calf bearer that we saw earlier. Uh, Hermes is carrying an animal. It's a more typical representation of the Good Shepherd symbol. Uh, you see the clean-shaven face. It's a youthful face. Um, he's carrying the ram under the arm. It's not an ox, but as you see, this is 450 BCE. Uh, so the idea is, is very much already established uh, of Hermes. This is an example of the Akkadian representation of Hermes as the ram bearer. Uh, you see the winged calves on the ankles, typically associated with Hermes. We mostly think of Hermes as a messenger. Um, you also have the ram being born under the arm, evoking that sacrificial salvation affecting uh, the gods and life motif. Uh, one area that Hermes, that a lot of people don't know that Hermes is associated with, uh, is being depicted as a bearer of souls to the afterlife. This would have been something that the early Christian community would have uh, had in mind, especially when they're using these Hermes symbols in catacombs. They're considering the afterlife. Um, the, uh, it, you can see here, this is, a, uh, this is a representation on a vase from 450 BC. Uh, in the middle, you can see Hermes uh, to the right, I guess, the way you're looking at it. It's faint, but there's a woman, and he's guiding her to the ferryman on the left who's going to take her into the land of the dead. So now if we jump forward many hundred years to where this is being adopted by the Christians, we see the good shepherd in uh, catacombs that contain Christian imagery, giving that context and saying, okay, this is definitely a good shepherd uh, evoking all of that, but this is being expressed from, uh, from the Christian community's point of view. So this image is from the same catacomb that we had the virtual tour of last week uh, in uh, Priscilla. I think they, it, we said maybe it's pronounced Priscilla or something like that. But um, this is actually at the top of the dome, uh, right in the center. Uh, it's the same image that's been associated with Hermes, with pastoral care, with sacrifice, with care after death. And it's used to symbolize Christ. Uh, you can see in the center that this Christ figure is, is shown with no beard and there's a flock around him along with doves showing that he's the carer of the flock um, and that there's peace around him. And so if you take that into the context of this is in a catacomb, they're considering what's ha what happens at death. What has happened to my loved one at death? What will happen to me at death? Uh, here's another good shepherd at the catacomb of Callictus. This is third or fourth century. So we're, we're getting into the time where Christianity is being accepted. Um, Right, right, either during or right after some pretty heavy persecutions. They, they do go back to back. Uh, once again, you see the clean-shaven figure of Christ in the Good Shepherd motif with three animals around him. He's carrying a bucket. That's probably you know a bucket of milk as we see in the, the much earlier common representations of the Good Shepherd and of Hermes. It would be consistent with the symbol. So there's some common themes. Would be Roman art, Roman artists So the question was, uh, the question was, would the artist necessarily have been Greek? Um, it depends. From the best I know, is you know there there's sort of a mix at this point. 
of, of, uh, uh, of Christian sects, some from Jewish backgrounds, some from the Greek-speaking world as a result of Paul's missionary journeys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the, the worlds are colliding. And, uh, and so you have people from the Hellenistic world uh, painting these who are both Greek and Christian. Well, so are we saying that Hermes has become moved into the Good Shepherd, like that transition has gone into that, or was there already a Good Shepherd motif prior to? So the question is, uh, is has, has Hermes been co-opted here? Correct. Okay, so it's not necessarily one or the other in these situations. Um, you know, communication isn't as it is now, where there's some central board, you know. We don't have a long Facebook list of, of Apollos and Paul being able to throw shade at each other. Um, you've got a lot of people figuring out what this new Christian religion is. And in some cases, based on the personality, I would just guess, some people are gonna say, uh, no, this is our symbol now. Some would say this symbol is like our symbol, as you see with Paul on Mars Hill saying, you know, hey, I can relate to you on this point. Let me tell you about something. I think all of the things are going on as, as we're getting into that age. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's always easier to get something that's known rather than create a new. Yes, it, yeah, it's definitely easier to start with something known and work from there. The reason I ask is the past two pictures that were of the Good Shepherd, the feet almost looked winged. Mm-hmm. Not specifically winged, but a little like there was something detailed about their feet. Yeah, um, the, the detail on the feet probably just did come from they're drawing the Good Shepherd, the Hermes symbol now. I mean, it's, you know, it's like I said, these are the same, you know, drawings, but they're drawn for different reasons now. Um, these are the same works, but uh, based on who's using it and why they're using it, um, which actually gets into a good point here. I wanted to talk about some common themes. So you see these, uh, these BCE representations of the Good Shepherd, Hermes, and these later uh, representations used by the Christian community, and they share some common themes. People are wrestling with how they would receive care in this life, and they're telling stories of the deities that save them, or care for them, or require sacrifice, or provide sacrifice, and they're wrestling with what happens to loved ones and to themselves after death. They're telling stories of the deities that will safely guide them to some afterlife or some resurrection. And we'll revisit that point uh, at the end in the wrap up. So we're gonna jump into the uh, Orpheus and Helios uh, depictions where the same Orpheus or Helios imagery is used to, uh, to represent Christ. Orpheus makes a great transition as he's also uh, typically depicted as a shepherd figure. Now Orpheus is traditionally held as the son of a muse, I think uh, Calypso, and, uh, and either the king of Thrace or Apollo, depending on who's telling the story. Uh, he's typically depicted with a stringed instrument, as you see here, uh, holding that lyre, and uh, surrounded in nature by animals. So this signifies one of the, uh, the commonly known legends around Orpheus, that his music was so beautiful that the rocks and the trees and the animals danced around him and he tamed them. Uh, but beyond the pastoral similarities with the Good Shepherd symbol, Orpheus also shares that afterlife care significance that we have come to see with Hermes. So, uh, they, as the legend goes, after the death of his wife, Orpheus is said to have gone to Hades and, and uh, roundabout rescued her. Uh, although he has a Lot's wife level failure at the end because the one condition was that they weren't to turn around when they leave the underworld. Of course, he turns around and pop, she's in there. 
somehow despite that failing Orpheus gets this savior figure associated with afterlife um, so this mosaic uh, this was this is an interesting one it was recently returned uh, from the Dallas Museum who had it to its rightful origin because prior to Dallas getting it uh, it had been uh, ill-gotten and, uh, and toured around the world but it's back where it belongs this is actually a non-christian work it's placed in a uh, in a tomb and the inscription on the bottom left that you can see there is an Aramaic. Uh, it says, in the month of Nijan, year of 505, uh, I, Papa, son of Papa, made for myself this house of rest for myself and for my children and for my heirs. Blessed is he who sees it and pronounces a blessing. Um, this referral to house is, is a house of eternity or a tomb. So if you look at that image and then we jump forward uh, into the catacomb of Domitila, same figure, once again, being used, and you would only know by context um, what it, what it uh, is supposed to mean. This, uh, this work is in a uh, catacomb where many of the Christian martyrs were entombed and Christians of that day. Many of the previously discussed symbols uh, that we've talked about in this class are there along with some narrative imagery from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, the context shows us that the artist is co-opting the Orpheus image as a symbol for Christ. And uh, this is also supported in some of the writing of the time. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, while writing, just outright compares the two and says, uh, he refers to uh, Jesus speaking about Orpheus saying, my minstrel, the only one who ever tamed the most intractable of all wild beasts, man. So uh, here he is referring to the taming of mankind through the rite of baptism. When we jump forward, uh, Christ is also depicted using the Helios imagery. This is a non-Christian depiction. Uh, so Helios, Sol Invictus, Apollo, sort of all the same. They, uh, through the ages, turn into each other. Uh, where Orpheus and previously discussed symbols could be the blending of thoughts that we thought, Helios was, a, it was an outright appropriation, especially around the time of Constantine. So here we see Helios uh, as depicted in the Temple of Athena, uh, 4th century BCE. Uh, if you remember, Helios is the one who rides the chariot across the sky every day and rises each morning. So you see the, uh, the halo of the sun behind him, the, uh, uh, the horses almost jumping out of the space that they're given. Uh, it gives it that, that movement, that power, um, sort of that unstoppable feeling. Uh, Helios is eventually replaced in thought by Apollo and then later worshipped as Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Now, prior to Constantine, this was the official sun god of the, uh, the later Roman Empire and the uh, patron saint of the soldiers. In fact, uh, on December 25th, 274 AD, uh, Aurelius, the, the Roman emperor, made it the official cult alongside of the traditional Roman cults. And the, the December 25th is not a coincidence. Uh, it's just another place where these, these two thoughts are blending together. Um, the day of the sun and the son of God uh, are, are eventually put together on that day, and thus we have Christmas at that time. Uh, there have been those that argued Constantine, who you know would have come into this, uh, this Sol Invictus world and then uh, saw the sign in the sky that said, conquer in this name as he's, he's taking uh, you know, the throne. Uh, a lot of people will make some great arguments that he never really figured out the difference between Sol Invictus and Christ and there was sort of this syncretism going on in his mind and he was really just trying to run an empire. Um, 
So that same image you can see here, this is a, uh, a Christ image uh, that's obviously the same Helios image in the Vatican necropolis in the late early, or late third, early fourth century, which would have been the time of Constantine. Uh, this work shows the same haloed figure driving the chariot. You can see the, uh, the horses there. Uh, however, in the context of the room in which it's found, it, it is accepted as a Helios symbol now used to represent Christ. The early Christians and the worshipers of the sun god had a lot in common, and, the, and this seemed inevitable that they were, you know, that they would be confused and, you know, eventually put together. Uh, examples would be the, the Lord's Day and the Day of the Sun were the same day. Um, Christ is referred to as the light of the world. There's a lot of light imagery, a lot of rising imagery, and the similarities go on and on to the point that uh, Tertullian, one of the uh, one of the great thinkers and writers of that time, feels the need to actually go out and defend the early Christians saying that, hey, just because they worship at sunrise on the day of the sun, please don't confuse that with this Sol Invictus cult. We are actually a Christian community. Um, there's also uh, some good examples from Brad's book uh, where Clement of Alexandria uh, has some thoughts on the issue that, that depict how, how much these worlds are coming together. So he describes Christ as the sun, S-U-N, of resurrection, um, Helios Tas Anastasis, and the one begotten before the morning star who gives life with his own rays. Um, that's a description that could have served for a caption for this Vatican mosaic uh, that we see here. Uh, there is some irony in the fact that this, this actual work that, uh, that he's writing is, is attacking uh, the use of, uh, of such imagery. Um, we also have a, uh, a description from Clement as Christ as a charioteer ascending into heaven, uh, where he says, Hail, O light, for he who rides over all creation is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who has changed sunset into sunrise and crucified death into life. Um, and then one further example of this where it, it's, it's even unclear who they're supporting is, uh, is from the Armenian liturgy for uh, the Feast of Epiphany where it says, Come and see how the radiant Helios is baptized in the waters of a wretched river. A mighty cross appeared over the baptismal font. The servants of sin descend and the children of immortality rise up. Come then and receive the light. So you can see where there's some confusion um, as to, you know, if you asked someone, which is it back then, you'd probably get a lot of different answers. You might get some hemming and hawing. Somebody might just draw half a fish in the dirt and walk away. Um, so you, but in this, you also see in the earlier representations of, of Helios, of Apollo, and in the Sol Invictus uh, cult, and in these Christian catacombs, there's these common themes, these same questions that they're asking. They're still wrestling with how they're going to receive care in this life. How can I respond to the danger going on in my life. Um, they're telling stories of deities that save them or care for them or require sacrifice. And they're wondering as they're burying uh, their loved ones, what's, where are they? What's happening to them? What's gonna happen to me? Um, it was intentional that these common questions were addressed with known symbols as the Christian community spread uh, and became a part of the significant empire in the day. Um, it, it's often suggested uh, that a lot of religion in the various faiths have origins in the grieving process because there's a lot a lot of similarities especially in you know the stages of grief of denial and bargaining that show up in our religion and that's not to throw out the religion that's to examine it closely and say how much of this is God and how much of this is me putting words 
in God's mouth, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, first, we're going to talk about one more thing. We have a, a less common figure that appears among many of the symbols that we've covered uh, thus far. So at the center of this piece, you see the seated figure with the scroll. Uh, this is a seated philosopher, not the complete common depiction. Usually you'll see the seated philosopher with someone bowing at their feet, um, usually a smaller uh, figure. That's not actually what that is on the far left. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but uh, as, uh, as the sort of faith of the day was becoming uh, reason and logic and philosophy and the Christian community is coming into that, they still have to be relevant um, to, to keep going. Uh, and you can see how much they valued this in that the seated philosopher often showed up on pagan sarcophagi uh, to say this was a wise person. Um, this, this person gave it, you know, embodied these values of our day, the same that we see you know, putting, putting Christian symbols on, on tombs and gravestones today. Um, as Christianity attempted to enter the world, you'll once again see that this old symbol being claimed and used. Um, as, we, as we already discussed, you see the seated philosopher. You also see something familiar if you've been here for the last few weeks of this orant figure. Uh, this praying person, and there's also a good shepherd to the right of the figure that we've already talked about. And then the most telling thing on the, that uh, figure uh, lying down with the serpent looking thing next to it, that's actually a depiction of Jonah being spit up um, by, the, uh, by the great fish or whale or whatever you want to call it. So it definitely has a Christian context here, and you could safely say that this is, uh, this is a Christian uh, motif. So here you see uh, a depiction that, outside of its context, again, you wouldn't know which is which. Uh, this, this work uh, could be taken as a, as a philosopher not associated with Christ, as it mimics depictions, uh, the most famous being of Socrates flanked by his students, but of, of any great philosopher, you would see them flanked by the students. You see the, uh, the, the sort of raised hand uh, and then holding a, a scroll or, or some type of parchment. Um, but this would signify this great, great thinker, a great logician. Uh, however, in, in this uh, particular catacomb, there's nearby work showing the, this same central figure. The face is drawn exactly the same, and, it's, and the figure is performing healings um, that, that you could clearly say this is part of the Jesus uh, story. So uh, here you're, you're actually seeing Christ uh, flanked by his disciples. Um, in the case of the teacher philosopher symbols, I see less of a common theme of deep questions as I do uh, the co-opting of the new religion of the day. Um, the most clear example outside of art, uh, if you want to do some reading on your own, would be the writings of the self-proclaimed Christian philosopher Justin Martyr. Uh, he likes to kind of read into history, looking at the history of philosophy and saying that even though they were mistaken sometimes, They've paved the way for Christianity to spread through the Greek-speaking world. And then uh, Tertullian, who we talked about earlier, uh, would claim that Christianity alone has the answers that philosophers thought. So you can see that they're, they're actually looking at this new legitimate you know, area of human growth and, and saying, you know, actually our religion has, uh, has claim on that. Uh, as you go forward, uh, this shows up outside of depictions of Christ. Here we see a depiction of the Apostle Paul on the right. He has his trademark beard. Um, and uh, on the 
left, you see a depiction of Sophocles. So you can see the similarities in the stance and style. Um, this definitely would convey a philosopher embodying the valued traits of the time. Now, of course, while Paul uh, probably did have some philosophy chops to brag about, which would make this you know, a legitimate depiction, it also shows up in other works that depict Daniel and Job and Moses and John the Baptist, um, you know, and many of those obviously predate this age of philosophy, so they're going back in time uh, and trying to say, yeah, yeah, we always knew about that. Um, so we'll jump into the takeaways from both of these. The common questions raised by the symbols of the Good Shepherd and Orpheus and Helios about safety in, in life uh, and after death uh, have these attempts at answers from both the pagan and the Christian world. Um, I think everyone in here in some way is probably ascribed to the Christian story and the, the Judeo-Christian beliefs and said we, we believe that you know to some level this is true. So by extension we all believe that the answers in, in pagan stories and other religions are to some degree false. Um, that's to say, you know, there's this belief, whether we have actively thought about it and concluded it, or in most cases, if you're like me, raised in the church, saying, you know, uh, Christianity has it right, and so the other beliefs have it wrong, and that's just in the back of your mind and can often go unexamined. Um, they had questions without good answers. What happens to me after I die? And so they come up with the best answer they can and they start telling stories and start ascribing those to their deities, to their mythologies. But the interesting thing is our faith and their faith have come up with the same answers and it's been clearly depicted. One of the best questions that we can ask ourselves is where are we and where have we done the same thing? Uh, we can hold to our belief in God and ask that and we should do that. We need, to, uh, we need to take a hard look at where our beliefs have come from and ask ourselves what is actually from God and what is an answer that I put in God's mouth because I don't have a good answer right now, but this stuff is so important to me, legitimately, I need an answer now. Um, I think a good example of that is with you know, what we think about death and what happens after. And we need to take a good look at what is actually from uh, from Christ, what is actually from God, and what, how much of that came from Dante. A lot of what we believe about afterlife doesn't line up with what the early Christians believed in. There's, a, there's you know, songs like I'll Fly Away, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a good tune, and you sing it at the retirement home, and everybody gets into it, but I'm not sure I believe that. Um, and, and without even getting into whether you believe the Bible is infallible, you can go to that source and see that there, there's a difference that has evolved, and we need to take a look at that, because that's an important question. Uh, finally, we, we need to stop being what I call the, the hipsters of religion. Um, I don't know if you know about sort of the, the hipster uh, groups out there. They love to say that they were into stuff before it was cool, um, and, and it seems like we've done that too. So as you saw with the seated philosopher, Christians saw this great thing happening in areas of philosophy and tried to act like the Judeo-Christian story was into the philosopher's story before it was cool. Um, they started depicting all the characters from scripture in, in the garb and pose of the philosopher, you know, in these short tunics of folks from the old Old Testament. And, and this wasn't the first time that that had happened. Um, the, uh, the Jewish community, after they had come back from Assyrian uh, uh, exile, 
had done the same thing. If you're aware of the, uh, the Book of Enoch, which is actually a collection of five books that are dated at different periods, um, it's referred to in the New Testament. It just didn't make the cut you know, when they were uh, putting together the canon. Um, but they're this collection of books where they're saying that visions have been given to the Enoch of the Old Testament. Um, like I said, the dating comes from uh, different uh, places in time based on the language and, uh, and what they refer to. Um, but one, one section is clearly being written in the uh, sort of during and after the exile. So while in exile, the Jewish people learned about astronomy and astrology that the Assyrians are discovering. And, uh, and so they, they say, you know, astro astronomy, you know, when they come back, no, uh, that's, you can throw out astrology, that's fine, but astronomy is cool. The, the way the, the solar system works is cool and it's legitimate, but they look at it and they go, yeah, that's legitimate. We need to make sure we ascribe that to our God. And so all of a sudden you have these writings from Enoch who got a vision of how the solar system works. Um, so they, they co-opted it. Uh, and the biggest example that comes to mind for me right now is uh, how we've reacted to the age of scientific discovery by trying to use the Bible to one-up or contradict things that we're finding out. Um, but we don't have to do that. You know, we can hold our faith in God in one hand and the truth of discovery in both hands. Um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, we get into these debates over like the creation narrative and if it could speak up, it would say, hey, I, I never wanted to address that. That didn't exist when I was written. Um, so, we, you know, we, we we, uh, we can hold that truth and, and not try to co-opt it for ourselves and say, yeah, this is, this is our story as it came up now. Um, and it has some truth. And these things that we're discovering now have some wonderful truth and they don't have to be at odds. So that's what I have today. I, I think you had one comment. Yeah, what, what, when did the seated professor of philosopher, what, what period did that reach its peak? Or? Um, uh, the question for the recording is uh, when did the seated philosopher reach its peak? I don't know. Um, I know it did predate the time, um, but... Uh, As a Christian, so, but I, I'm wondering if that had a relationship to Gnosticism. It was present during the Gnostic movements, um, I most mean, definitely. Like the, they're both... Yeah, for like secret knowledge. secret knowledge. Um, and then, of course, that would also play into the, uh, the light, um, you know, imagery associated because the, the Gnostics believed in some sort of uh, secret knowledge and to be enlightened... Um, so yeah, it did show up there. I do think it waned uh, after Constantine, but I would have to look it up to give you good information. Um, I may have given you bad information today too. Um, so who knows? Uh, next week I'll be teaching again. Um, you know, of course, they might listen to the recording and think I'm a heretic, which I'd be okay with, and then they'll just call Brad back in. But I appreciate everybody being here today, and uh, y'all go have a blessed day.